Well, I want to welcome you today. Thank you for being with us. And I invite you to find your place in your Bible at the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 to 30. The words will also be there on your screen if you'd like to follow along with me. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I'm sure that you probably know that today is, in fact, Palm Sunday. If you don't know about Palm Sunday, let me just take a moment and tell you that this is the first day of what we traditionally call Passion Week. It begins with Palm Sunday and it ends with Easter Sunday. And it describes for us, this week describes for us the events, the last events of the life of the Lord Jesus leading up to and including his crucifixion on the cross. As Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on this particular day, there were a crowd of people who were yelling his praises, and they were taking their coats, and they were taking palm branches, which is where we get the name from. They were taking palm branches, and they were laying them on the road before this donkey on which Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. If you will, they were giving to him the royal treatment. They were treating him as the king who was coming. Unfortunately, what they were looking for was different than what Jesus was coming to bring. They were looking for political and national freedom, but in fact, Jesus had come that day to bring all mankind spiritual freedom. And by the end of that week, the entire mood had changed. And now the crowd was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And you can imagine what it must have been like, the tumult, and what it must have been like in that particular, on that particular day, in that particular week during that time in the life of Jerusalem and in the life of Jesus. On that Friday, it may have been Thursday, but we'll go with the traditional dating of Jesus being crucified on Friday. We're told that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. The first time he spoke offering forgiveness to his enemies, to all who would be willing to receive it. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine that Jesus in those moments was willing to extend forgiveness even to those who were carrying out this brutal crucifixion? On either side of Jesus, there were two criminals, one on each side. They had, for a period of time, both railed on Jesus themselves. But at some moment during those early hours of that day, somewhere between nine and noon, one of those thieves had had a change of heart, and he had come to recognize that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And he asked Jesus if he would remember him when he came into paradise. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in those moments between nine and noon, the third time Jesus speaks, he looks and he sees his mother Mary. She's been there this entire time. She's watched all of this unfolding. And she knows, he knows that she must be cared for. And he turns to John and he commits the care of his mother to the apostle John. 
and then it's noon. At noon, the skies go dark. It's as if somebody took a switch and they just turned off the lights. And for the next three hours, Jesus hung in the darkness of those hours. It was during that time that Jesus was taking the penalty of all of mankind's sin on himself. Jesus was paying a price that had to be paid, but it wasn't something that was the result of Jesus' sin. It was our sins for which Jesus was dying. And listen to how the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or, or listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed." Those must have been terrifying hours. Jesus was experiencing something no one had ever experienced before in the way Jesus was experiencing it because he was taking the price of all of our sins and he was paying it himself through his separation that he felt from God. The fourth time he speaks is at the end of those three hours from noon until about 3 p.m., and he cries out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little later, he will acknowledge his thirst. We just read about that a few moments ago. And then he will speak what is the singular most important word that's spoken during the crucifixion scene. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. And then Jesus speaks and he gives up his spirit to the Father and he dies. I want you to stop and think with me for a few moments about what crucifixion really meant. A few years ago, 15 or 16 years ago, Mel Gibson produced a movie called The Passion of the Christ. Uh, it was done in Latin, and then there were subtitles so that you could follow along the dialogue as it was unfolding. Maybe he got close to the brutality of what it was like to be crucified, but I want to read to you from a book that I read several years ago. It was written by a columnist and a journalist, and he approaches it from that perspective. The book was called The Day Jesus Died, written by Jim Bishop. And listen to his description, and let it paint a word picture in your mind of what was unfolding on this crucifixion day when Jesus spoke these seven times. Listen to how he describes it. The executioner laid the crossbeam behind Jesus and brought him to the ground quickly by grasping his arm and pulling it backward. As soon as Jesus fell, the beam was fitted under the back of his neck, and on each side, soldiers quickly knelt on the inside of the elbows. Jesus gave no resistance and said nothing, but he groaned as he fell on the back of his head and the thorns pressed against his torn scalp that crown of thorns that had been placed there. Once begun, the matter was done quickly and efficiently. The executioner wore an apron with pockets. He placed two five-inch nails between his teeth and hammer in hand knelt beside the right arm. The soldier whose knee rested on the inside of the elbow held the forearm flat to the board. With his right hand, the executioner probed the wrist of Jesus to find the little hollow spot when he found it, 
He took one of the square-cut iron nails from his teeth and held it against the spot directly behind where the so-called lifeline ends. Then he raised the hammer over the nail head and brought it down with force. The executioner jumped across the body to the other wrist, and he repeated all of those same actions. As soon as he was satisfied that the condemned man could not, in struggling, pull himself loose and perhaps fall forward off the cross, he brought both of his arms upward rapidly. This was the signal to lift the crossbeam. Two soldiers grabbed each side of the crossbeam and lifted. As they pulled up, they dragged Jesus by the wrists. With each breath, he groaned. When the soldiers reached the upright, the four of them began to lift the crossbeam higher until the feet of Jesus were off the ground. The body must have writhed with pain. The four men pushed upward until the mortise hole was over the upright. When the crossbeam was set firmly, the executioner reached up and set the board which listed the name of the prisoner and the crime. Then he knelt before the cross. Two soldiers hurried to help, and each one took hold of a leg at the calf. The ritual was to nail the right foot over the left, and this was probably the most difficult part of the work. If the feet were pulled downward and nailed close to the feet or to the foot of the cross, the prisoner always died quickly. Over the years, the Romans learned to push the feet upward on the cross so that the condemned man could lean on the nails and stretch himself upward to breathe, so that he could push up on the nail in his feet and on the nails in his hands, so that he could draw breath into his lungs. Another author, Chuck Swindoll, a well-known speaker and author, adds these words about this crucifixion scene. He says, excruciating pain stabbed the dead weight body that hung on unbending nails. Each movement, that is up and down to get his breath, cut deeper into bone and tendons and raw muscle. Fever inevitably set in, inflaming the wounds and creating an insatiable thirst. Waves of hallucinations drifted the victim in and out of consciousness. And in time, flies and other insects found their way to the cross. The soldiers who were carrying this out, the Roman guards who were carrying this out, weren't moved emotionally by any of this. They had participated in literally hundreds and thousands of these kinds of crucifixions. They had no mercy on the one who was being crucified, and yet the one who was being crucified would have mercy on us that day. And more horrifying than the physical death that Jesus died were those three hours from 12 until 3 when Jesus took our sin upon himself and Jesus paid the price for our sins. And in those moments, he took the separation from God that we rightfully deserve. We understand something better today about separation, don't we? About isolation, don't we? And even the little bit that we're experiencing is nothing to begin to even compare to what Jesus was experiencing on that cross as he hung there on that day. And while he hung there, the sixth thing that he said, translated in our Bibles by three words, it is finished, is really just one single word in the original language. It's the word testelestai. 
tetelestai. Maybe you can try to pronounce that yourself right there where you are. Just that little Greek word, tetelestai. Tetelestai speaks of the very purpose for which Jesus had come from heaven to earth. Everything else that had gone before in history was leading up to this very moment in time. And Jesus was able to say, hanging on the cross that day, it is finished to telestai. One verse before, verse 29, where it says it is finished, that same Greek word is translated as the word accomplished. Accomplished. Something interesting that you might want to know. Only John records this particular saying of Jesus. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't specifically mention Jesus saying this word. But they do mention that Jesus yelled loudly something. He spoke loudly toward the end of his life as he was getting ready to give up his spirit to the Father. And the only thing that we can deduce is that in those final moments of Jesus' life, that he pushed himself up on that nail in his feet and pulled himself on the nails in his hands and he brought another breath into his lungs so that he could say as loudly as he could possibly say, Tetelestai, it is finished. This wasn't the cry of a defeated man nor merely the announcement of an imminent death. This was the shout of victory from the one who had accomplished and completed the work that God had given him to do. His mission was fulfilled. This was the shout of triumph. This was a champion boldly declaring that he had successfully completed his lifetime achievement. This loud cry declares that his saving work is finished. You know, one of the interesting things about the Greek language is that it so often draws for us word pictures. As you begin to look and you see how the word is used in other contexts, you begin to get pictures, mental images of what the word actually means. For instance, an artist would use this word to telestai whenever he had finished his painting and he had placed the last stroke of his brush on that masterpiece. He would lay his brush down and he would say, Tetelestai, it's perfect. And what Jesus had done that day on the cross of Calvary when he yelled, Tetelestai, it is finished, he was finishing incomplete, in perfection, what God had given him to do. When a servant was sent on a task by his master, when that task was finished, he would come back and he would say that word, Tetelestai, finished, I have finished. And we're reminded that Jesus is the suffering, the suffering servant on this day and that what he accomplished that day was what the Father had sent him to accomplish. A priest would use this word when he was examining the animals that were brought for the purpose of sacrifice. He would examine the animal. He would rub his hands along the animal and look for the imperfections because you couldn't bring a blemished animal, animal as a sacrifice. But when he learned and saw that this animal was unblemished, that it was acceptable, he would say, Tetelestai. And on this day, Jesus was the unblemished Lamb of God who was paying the penalty of all of mankind's sin. And then a judge would use this word, this word Tetelestai, whenever he commuted a sentence or when he issued a ruling that a sentence had been completed. 
He would say to the one who had been incarcerated, it's finished, to telestai. And that was the indication that he was set free. And on this day on Calvary, Jesus was setting us free from our sins. But the one that I like best is the accountant's term. The accountants used this word whenever they had a bill that had been paid in full. They would stamp on it the word tetelestai. And obviously that meant that the one who had been the debtor had been freed from his debt forever. And may I tell you today that what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary was to pay a debt that every one of us owed. And he paid that debt in full. You say, why is it so important that Jesus speak this word from the cross to tell us it is finished? Why is it so important? Because until that time, there were the offerings at the temple that just went on and on and on. You brought your offering, and then you came back again later, and you brought another offering, and you came later and brought another offering. And every year, there were these offerings that were constantly going on. But do you realize that when Jesus died as the sinless Lamb of God, taking our sins upon himself, that he finished what had been going on and on forever. Everything previously was unfinished, but now Jesus has finished it in totality. Listen to how the Bible words it. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Or listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 7. He says, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for, the, for his own sins and then for the, the sins of the people. For this he did, Jesus did, once for all when he offered up himself. Or in Hebrews chapter 9, he says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Do you get it? That's what it means when he says it's finished. It was once for all. The mission has been accomplished. It is a word of victory. Jesus has defeated sin, and he has paid the price in full. To Telestai, it is finished, is stamped on our sin debt. It's an incredible thing that Jesus did on that day. In essence, what Jesus was doing that day was making it possible for any one of us to come to him and to be saved through the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We could actually paraphrase this word to Telestai as the word mission accomplished. What God had sent Jesus to do, Jesus had accomplished perfectly. You know, illustrations are never perfect, but I want to give you an illustration of something that happened in our lives. It'll begin to give you a little bit of a sense of what it means when it says that Jesus finished the work on Calvary. A number of years ago, some dear friends of ours gave us a trip to the Greenbrier Hotel, a one-night trip to the Greenbrier Hotel. We had never been to the Greenbrier. Most of you know about the Greenbrier and the beautiful, beautiful location and the, the luxurious accommodations, that old stately building. But we had never been to the Greenbrier. We'll probably never get to go again to the Greenbrier. But this couple wanted us to be able to say we'd been there and done that. And so they sent us on a trip for one night to the, to the Greenbrier Hotel, and they paid 
for us to go. Now, mindful, this is before they have the special rates that they sometimes have today during the winter season and other times. This was when it was very costly and very expensive to go. Even one night was very costly, very expensive to go. We got there three or four that afternoon of the night we were supposed to stay. When we arrived, we were treated with, with such honor, with such dignity. We, we so appreciated the way uh, they treated us. They met us there as we drove up, and they took our car, a valet took our car and parked it for us. They took our luggage from us. Ultimately, they would take our luggage to the room for us. When we got there and we checked in, we learned that not only had our friends paid for that night to stay, they had paid all of our tips and all of our meals as well. And so we made our way up to the room along with the person who was taking our luggage for us, and we opened the door, we walked in, and there were chocolates in the room. And may I just tell you that chocolates would arrive a little later as well. It was quite the luxurious treatment. After we had gotten settled in the room, we decided to go and to start walking around the property, and we must surely have looked like the Clampets come to Hollywood. We were walking around like country come to town. We were gawking at everything we were looking at, all of the stores and the restaurants and all of the beautiful amenities and this exquisite place where we were having the privilege to be able to stay. There was a theater where you could watch one of the current films that was showing. There was a bowling alley. There was a bunker to tour and a lot of other things. And we couldn't do all of those things, but we were grateful for the things that we were able to do, and all of it was paid for by our friends. When it came supper time, you know you have to dress up to go to supper. We got dressed up, and we went down to the dining room, and we sat down, and we enjoyed what would be an incredibly delicious meal. The waiter came with the menu, and he placed the napkin in our laps. Nobody ever does that for us. He placed the napkin in our laps, and there was live music that was playing in that dining room hall that we were so enjoying, and then the meal began, and it was several courses long, and it ended with this incredible dessert that we thoroughly enjoyed, and when we had finished, we just got up and left because it had been paid for in full by our friends. A little later that evening, we got back to our rooms and our robes had been laid out for us on our bed. Now, I don't even own a robe at home, but here were these robes laid out for us and we were so touched by all the things that they were doing and all the luxuries they were showing to us. And I think I've already mentioned this once before, but later that evening, some more chocolate arrived. I mean, everything was exquisite, and everything was incredibly wonderful. The next morning, we got up, and it continued. We enjoyed the breakfast together. We enjoyed continuing to gawk as we looked around that grand old estate. And the thing is, when our time was up, we got our car, put our luggage back in the car, and we drove away, and we didn't owe anything. It didn't cost us Anything, You know why? Because somebody else had paid for that night for us. Now, I know that's an imperfect illustration, but I want you to get an image that you and I owe a sin debt that we could never pay on our own. It is greater if we had all of our lives to live over again and we could live somehow in a way that would somehow honor God in a way to... to to be able to pay our sin debt. We could never pay our sin debt in full. 
But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus paid for our sin debt in total. He paid for everything in total. It is finished. To Telestai, you can't pay any more for it. You wouldn't want to take anything away from it. He has paid for it in full. It is finished. There's a preacher friend of mine who has a message about this very saying of Jesus, and he closes his message about this saying of Jesus this way. He says, let me tell you the best news you've ever heard. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter how many sins you've piled up in your life. It doesn't matter how guilty you think you are. It doesn't matter what you've been doing this week. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how many skeletons rattle around in your closet. All of your sins have been stamped by God with one word, to telestai, paid in full. Anger, paid in full. Uncontrolled ambition, paid in full. Gossip, paid in full. Drunkenness, paid in full. Fornication, paid in full. Adultery, paid in full. Lying, paid in full. Disobedience, paid in full. Pride, paid in full. Bribery, paid in full. And the list can go on, he says. Those are just examples. Just fill in the blank with whatever sins plague your life. Then write over those sins the word to Telestai, because through the blood of Jesus Christ, the price of your sins has been paid in full. Isn't that incredible news? Jesus hanging on the cross that day. Two nails, one in each of his hands, one in his feet, hanging there, suspended between heaven and earth, from 9 o'clock until 3 that afternoon. Jesus was taking the penalty for sin that you and I rightfully deserve, and he was paying the price for us so that he could say, it's finished. You can't add anything to it. You don't want to take anything away from it. Mission accomplished. Salvation has been purchased for all who will receive it. And today, today, you can receive that salvation. It can be yours today if you'd only be willing to trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Years ago, there was a man that needed to be saved, and he was attending a tent revival that was being held near his house. Each night, he resisted the invitation to get things right with God. And on the last night of the meeting, he listened carefully, but when the invitation was given again, well, again, he failed to respond. Later that evening, as they were taking down the tent, the preacher waited around for a few extra minutes. As he was about to leave, the man came over to him and said, What can I do to be saved, preacher? The preacher responded, It's too late. The man said, It's too late? You mean just because the meeting is over and you're taking down the tent? What do you mean it's too late? The preacher responded, Well, sir, you asked me what you can do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Jesus has already done everything for you, and you can't do anything else. My friends, you can't do anything else. Jesus has done it all. 
There's a cloud of guilt that hovers over you. There's a weight on your shoulders. There's an uneasiness about what comes after this life. There is no peace for you in this life because you don't have peace with God. And Jesus is reaching out to you on this Palm Sunday, and he's saying to you, it's finished. It's finished. I've paid for it in full. It can be yours if you'll just receive it. There's nothing you can do for it. There's nothing you can take away from it. It's complete. My mission was completed. And now all you have to do is be willing to receive my forgiveness and receive my pardon. And I will give to you a gift. What I purchased, I will give to you a gift. That gift is the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received Christ as your own Savior? Oh, my friends, there is no more important decision than that decision. And on Palm Sunday, what better Sunday when we're thinking about the last week of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion, when we're reminded what he did on the cross and that he cried out, it is finished. What better time for you to open your heart and say, Jesus, save me. You realize that you might not have come to the church service where we're having it on the campus that God has allowed us to come to you by way of the internet in this live stream. And he has brought to you this message of his forgiveness paid in full. And all you have to do is receive it. And my prayer for you is that today, right where you are right now, you'll reach out to the Lord in prayer and you'll say, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior.